I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 16 this morning. If you could live during any time in history, when would you choose to live? That makes a a fun icebreaker question. Uh, I think precisely because it's the kind of impossible, hypothetical scenario that stirs our imagination. I don't know, when when would I want to live? All kinds of fascinating time periods throughout history. But of course, none of us chose when we would be born. None of us chose where we would be born or the kind of cultural climate that we would live in. And, and there's something so unequal about that, isn't there? I mean, some people spend all their days living in times of relative peace and prosperity. And other people are born into tragic situations and live through all kinds of turmoil and hardship and wars and suffering. And just like different seasons of the year call for different responses, different rhythms of life, different attire that we put on, different periods of history call for different responses for those who are living through them. So when the foundations of civilization are shaken, how will we respond? How do we endure troubled times if God sees fit to ordain that we should live through them? There were Israelites, if we look back through Israel's history, there there were thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelites who got to live through the golden age under King Solomon. Peace, prosperity. The prophet Habakkuk was not one of those. He lived under weak and wicked kings in Judah. He lived under the heavy-handed oppression of Assyria, and he lived by faith as the Babylonian invasion was looming on the horizon. And that makes him the perfect guide for anyone facing uncertain times. At the beginning of this sermon series, I quoted Campbell Morgan, who said about the book of Habakkuk, the whole value of this prophecy is its revelation of the process that leads to the song in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And we've been repeating that phrase in the few messages that we've given on this book. It bears repeating. This is the song. This is where the whole developmental process for Habakkuk is going, Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So over the last few weeks, we've been following Habakkuk's journey, this, this process, this development that's happening in him. And we saw how at the outset, he just he started by lamenting. He lamented the unfaithfulness and the pervasive wickedness in his own people, the violence and the strife that characterized the city of Jerusalem where he lived. And then in faith, he asked honest questions. He wrestled with what looked to him like God's apparent passivity. How could you just 
idly sit by as all of this happens. And, and then he wrestled with the incongruity that he saw that as he started to realize God is going to use wicked Babylon to judge Judah. But Babylon is even worse. How could that be? How could a holy God wield as a tool a nation as evil as the Babylonians who dash infants against rocks for fun? And we saw in chapter 2 how he gets up above the fray, takes his stand in the watch post, and he says, I will watch and I will wait for answers from the Lord. And then throughout chapter 2, he, he has this assurance God is going to deal with the Babylonians. God is righteous. He is holy. He does act in history. And he will take care of them also. So as we come into chapter 3, Habakkuk is well on his way. He's begun to experience inner transformation that comes from that vantage point of faith. When you're looking at life, you're looking at all of history, you're looking at your circumstances through what God says. But here's the catch. For Habakkuk, the worst is yet to come. Habakkuk still has to live through those tumultuous times. That's still coming. The Babylonian invasion is still coming. The destruction of Jerusalem and the desecration of the temple and the deportation of Judah to Babylon, all of that is still coming. So Habakkuk has gotten some clarity about questions but we know having some philosophical, emotional, theological questions answered, that, that's good, that's important. But what about Monday morning? What about in a few short years when all of this happens? The, the remaining days of Habakkuk's life look bleak. And so I think the question that remains is, what do those who are justified by faith, what do they do in those times? What do troubled times call for? How should you respond when the world around you descends into madness with all the poise and all the grace of a two-ton hippo belly flopping into a mud pit, just eager and descending into madness and craziness? I mean, that. Does it not look like that around us? Habakkuk 3 is a spirit-inspired template for the response of God's people in hard times, and it served God's people for over 2,600 years, and it's meant to serve you. So I want to invite you to join me in reading Habakkuk 3, starting in verse 1, and if you're able, please stand with me out of reverence and awe and trembling at God's holy word. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigionoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. 
Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light and rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe before you. And we ask that you would revive your work in our days and that you would reveal them to us as you have revealed yourself in history and in your word. And here it is recorded for us in Habakkuk 3. Oh God, give us eyes to see you. May the eyes of our heart be opened and illuminated by your grace that we might behold your glory here and preeminently in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Habakkuk 3 is a gift from God to the people of God, showing us in all generations, in all places, all times, how to wait expectantly, how to live, how to endure in troubled times. And there are clues in verse 1 that indicate for us what Habakkuk 3 is and how it's supposed to function for us. First, notice Habakkuk 3 is a prayer. Verse 1 says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. There are several psalms, five to be exact, that are labeled with that same title, a prayer. Psalms 17, 86, 90, 102, 142. The title of the psalm in the Hebrew is a prayer. For example, Psalm 86 is called a prayer of David. Listen to the first lines. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you, for you are my God. 
Psalm 90 is titled, A Prayer of Moses, the Man of God. And Psalm 102 is more generally titled, A Prayer of One Afflicted, When He is Faint and Pours Out His Complaint Before the Lord. One of my personal favorite psalms. You ever feel that way? I, I need a prayer like one who is afflicted and is faint and has a complaint to pour out to God. That psalm begins like this, verses 1 and 2. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. This Hebrew word prayer oftentimes appears with another word like cry or plea. My prayer and my cry, my prayer and my plea. Verse 2 says, do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. So Habakkuk 3 is a specific kind of prayer, not just any prayer, not your typical mealtime prayer. It is a passionate plea for mercy. It's a, a desperate cry for help. It's a prayer for tumultuous times. It's a prayer expressing this desire, God, preserve my life, save me, deliver me. The prophet has a specific occasion in mind. He prays in verse 2, in the midst of the years. That, that's the, the time frame he's thinking about. In the midst of the years, revive it. That is, your work. In the midst of the years, he repeats that phrase, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Three times he repeats the specific time period that he's praying about. In the midst of the years refers to the time between this judgment that's coming on Judah and the judgment that's going to come on Babylon eventually. That, there's a big window in there. He has in mind that time that he has to live through. And he's thinking about that. In, in that time period, I know one day now you've told me you're going to deal with Babylon, you're going to judge them, all will be right, you're still holy and righteous and good. That's down the road. So what I'm worried about is Right now, this period I'm facing in my life that I have to endure, to Habakkuk, that's not abstract. That suffering is going to be real and painful for specific people, people with faces and names to Habakkuk. Friends and neighbors and family members to Habakkuk himself personally. Martin Lloyd-Jones paraphrases this time period, this prayer of Habakkuk like this. While these terrible things prophesied are actually taking place among us, or in the midst of the years of suffering and calamity which thou hast foretold, even then, O Lord, revive your work. That's what he means when he prays, in wrath, Remember mercy. The word translated wrath here in the ESV re refers to this time of, of calamity. It, it could be translated trembling or agitation. In fact, nowhere else in the Old Testament is it ever translated wrath. It's always translated trouble or, or turmoil. It's, it's one of the key words in this whole chapter. It shows up three more times in verses 7 and 16, and there it's always translated tremble or trembling. So is he talking about God's wrath, or is he talking about this period of turmoil that he's facing? And and I think it's both. It's a period of turmoil that's coming because of God's wrath. And Habakkuk is thinking about that time and saying, God, when, 
when all of that is happening, right there, would you remember to be compassionate and merciful in all your ways toward us there? And so he's praying a desperate plea, revive your work, reveal your work, remember your mercy. That's how he he prays. But Habakkuk 3 is more than a prayer for troubled times. The rest of verse 1 says, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigionoth. And you're like, oh, Shigionoth. Why didn't you mention that sooner? Actually, no one really knows what Shigionoth means, other than the fact that it's probably some kind of a musical or liturgical term. The title of Psalm 7 is a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord. So it's, it's something you sing. It's musical. So Habakkuk has written a song to be sung. The entire prayer ends in verse 19 with an obvious musical annotation to the choir master with stringed instruments. So here's a note. Here's the content to be sung. Very last words of the entire book. You need stringed instruments to get this right. It was written to be accompanied by music, to be sung. The term selah that appears in verses 3 and 9 and 13 are also musical, liturgical marks. All of this means Habakkuk 3 was not merely a prayer prayed in private devotions. This is a psalm. It's a prayer written to be sung in corporate worship with other believers. And that means that Habakkuk was not the only one who sang this song. He composed it, but he meant for it to be sung by others. And so the faithful remnant who actually lived through the Babylonian conquest and exile, they probably knew this song. They probably sang it together. We went through the book of Daniel not that long ago. I speculate Daniel knew this song, that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego knew this song and sang it together. And if they sang it together, then I wouldn't be surprised if David or Daniel, excuse me, praying on his knees three times a day, if if these words are going through his mind, God, remember mercy in the midst of our turmoil. Music is a gift from God. It's a tool for praying God's word, for meditating on the truth of God's word. And believers are commanded in places like Ephesians 5, 18 and 19. Listen to these words. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Paul repeats a similar command in Colossians 3, 16. Singing is a means of grace through which God himself fills you with his spirit again and again and again. Have you found this to be true? It's nearly impossible to wallow in your unbelief, your anxiety, your despair, your bad attitude if you are humming a song of praise to God. Have you ever tried? Just the other day I said something to my wife, my my attitude, I was just so off, and she said, you weren't singing. Oh, shigionoth. Sing. Did you catch Ephesians 5 has this one another dimension to it? Address one another. Sing to one another with 
one another. Corporate worship is a means by which God will sustain your faith through trials and tribulations. So, what do you do in troubled times while you're waiting for God to act? The answer, according to Habakkuk 3, is this. You worship while you wait. Worship while you wait. Worship while you wait. While you wait for God to act in the present, in your time, worship God for who He is. Praise Him and thank Him and honor Him for how He has acted in the past. Celebrating God's saving work in history sustains and strengthens faith and confidence that God will again act like that in the future. Rehearsing again and again to yourself and with each other, rehearsing God's saving wonders is what breeds confidence. This is who God is. This is how God works. God does govern the nations. He does govern nature. He will continue to do so to redeem His people. Worship is what strengthens our faith and our confidence and sustains us in troubled times. And Habakkuk 3 is a template. It it invites those who are trusting God in. Take this up. Sing this song. Praise God like, like this. God's people pray and God's people sing together in community, in tumultuous times. Worship while you wait. But is that it? You just... Whistle while you work, right? I mean, Disney told us that. The seven dwarfs teach us how to whistle while we work. Is that, is that all there is? Just sing a happy tune and everything's going to be better? Or just, just pray, meditate? I mean, even unbelievers find some sort of value in mindfulness, right? Just, just the other day was the National Day of Prayer. Anybody see the, the proclamation on the National Day of Prayer from the White House? <laughs> Listen to these words. Throughout our history, Americans of many religions and belief systems have turned to prayer for strength, hope, and guidance. And if you're a Christian, you think, no, we turn to God. We don't turn to prayer. We turn to God in prayer. Today, we remember and celebrate the role that the healing balm of prayer can play in our lives. Prayer doesn't heal us. God does. As we continue to confront the crises and challenges of our time, from a deadly pandemic to the loss of lives and livelihoods in its wake, to a reckoning on racial justice, to the existential threat of climate change, Americans of faith can call upon the power of prayer. The power of prayer or the power of God? To provide hope and uplift us for the work ahead. You don't have to be a Christian to try some meditation and try some mindfulness and just count to ten and get through it, or whistle while you work. But the righteous, who are right with God because they trust in God, the righteous live by faith. And the faith they live by is not vague optimism. It's not sheer willpower. It is specific confidence in God's character and God's covenant promises. And that's where Habakkuk takes us. The only kind of worship that will actually sustain you through tumultuous times is worship of the true and living God revealed in Scripture. The content of Habakkuk's song 
is, of course, itself Scripture. We call it Habakkuk chapter 3. It's in our Bibles. But not only is it Scripture, it's full of Scripture, which is incredible. Habakkuk begins by looking back. He says in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you. The, the thing that calls him to worship is what he has heard. And you have, in, in your Bible, access to these same reports that stirred Habakkuk to worship. I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now, it's possible that one of the things he has in mind is the work God has been revealing to him personally. Chapter 1, verse 5, God said to him, I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. But from verses 3 through 15, if we ask what work of God, what report about God does Habakkuk specifically have in mind, and then we go on to read the rest of the song, uh, verses 3 through 15 seem to be describing the exodus of Israel from Egypt. That quintessential redeeming work of God in history when he delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea, split the Red Sea open, destroys the most powerful military on earth, leads his people to Mount Sinai, delivers his law to them in storms and thunder and lightning, provides for them through the wilderness, brings them through the Jordan River and into the promised land. That's the event that's informing Habakkuk's Worship. The, the ge geographic markers here, Teman and Mount Paran in verse 3, Cushan and Midian in verse 7, th those designate, th those locate the route along which God took his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. God moved. God came. This is the route he took when he made himself known. Habakkuk's psalm echoes the language of Moses' song in Exodus 15. It also reminds us of Deborah's song in Judges 5 and David's song in Psalm 18. The language of Habakkuk 3 is saturated. You can just see Habakkuk, he's familiar with God's word. So he sings it and composes a new song for the exiles to sing in the coming days. One of the interpretive questions this passage raises is whether Habakkuk is talking about the past or the, the future. Commentators debate. What, what's he talking about? He actually switches his verb tenses throughout. Is it past tense? Is it future? I think what's happening is that as the people of God remember what God has done in the past, our expectation grows that God will work in those same ways in the future. And what we expect God to do and to be for us in the future is going to be consistent with who he has revealed himself to be in the past. How do we know what he's like? By what he's done and what he said. Where can we find that record? In his word. So as we turn there, we know this God and we expect him to continue to be that same God for us. In all our days, surely goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our lives, and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The message of Habakkuk's psalm is this. We know that God is coming for us because we know he has already come for us. We know he's coming for us because we know he already came for us. Faith is not just nostalgia. And, and I think that's something we have to watch out for in these particular days. Watch out for that attitude that 
just has a longing for the good old days. If only we could go back to the time when. God has something in store for us, and the way to it is through the days that lie ahead. And we look forward in faith, and our faith in God for the future is strengthened by the certainty of all that God has done in the past. So Habakkuk is attentive. He's attentive to God's word. Oh Lord, I've I've heard the report of you. And he's responsive. He is deeply affected by God's word. Your work, O Lord, do I fear. Verse 16, which we'll get into next week, he, he says after all of this, I hear and I tremble. He is affected just by calling to mind who God is, what he has done, how he has revealed himself. In their book, Everyday Church, Steve Timmis and Tim Chester offer what they call four liberating truths about God. And that, that's been a helpful framework for us at Emmaus Road Church. We have a, an appendix in our huddle guide that contains that. We, we refer to these four truths about God as the four G's because it's just a helpful way as we're making and multiplying disciples to call to mind quickly, here's who God is for us. God is glorious. God is great. God is gracious. God is good. That sums up so much of God's character and his attributes and his ways. And since that's a framework we commonly use, I just want to use that as kind of mental hooks to hang some of the truth about God revealed in this song for you. But even as we do that, keep in mind what affects Habakkuk is not just sitting down and rehearsing systematic theology. What he does, he sits down and he recounts the story, what God has done in history. And and in that book, Everyday Church, Timothy and Chester write this, we are called to portray God to one another in all his glory and beauty and majesty. It means singing songs and telling stories stories that speak of his glory, and then making connections to everyday life. It means presenting the truth in a way that captures imagination. Do not be satisfied with repeating the bald statements that God is great, glorious, good, and gracious. It's true. We don't just slap each other with that. Hey, pull it together. God's good. No, we we recount this is who he is, and here's how we know because of what he's done until our hearts are affected by that. That's what Habakkuk does. That's what he gave to the exiles going into Babylon and to the church throughout the generations. So draw upon all your knowledge, these authors say, all your knowledge of the Bible story and all the texts you have memorized and all the hymns and songs you know to express these truths with color and texture to each other. That's how you endure troubled times, how you worship while you wait. So with that caveat in mind, let me just briefly give you these four things. Worship the God who's glorious. God is majestic and awesome, and in this song, he is revealed as a fearsome warrior. Verse 3, his splendor covered the heavens. In verse 4, lightning flashes, and we catch this glimpse of this warrior God illuminated by a lightning bolt, which he is holding in his hand. Does that capture your imagination? That's how Habakkuk describes God. Did you catch that? Holding a lightning bolt in his hand, and then suddenly it all goes dark. Dark because of storm clouds that cover the sky, and his power is veiled, verse 4. He is riding storm clouds like they are his chariot and his horses, verse 8. 
Verse 9, he takes out his bow and he knocks his arrows. And then he marches through the earth in fury, verse 13, and threshes the nations. And he, he crushes the head of his enemy and then flays him from bottom to top. Using their own arrows, he drops his enemies with perfect headshots. This is a fearsome thing that's described here. Does that not inspire awe and wonder and terror? The rebellious nations of the earth are depicted here as these these primeval forces of chaos, river, and sea, which are throughout Scripture compared to the sea dragon Leviathan. And God is portrayed here as a dragon slayer, which might sound strange. I don't remember the last song we sang to God, the dragon slayer. But Scripture talks about God that way, so we should think of Him that way. Isaiah 27.1, for example, In that day the Lord with His hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and He will slay the dragon that is in the sea. And people want to say, like, is that like a crocodile? No, it's a sea dragon. And he destroys it with his sword. Listen to Psalm 74, 12 through 14, which makes this connection to God parting the Red Sea and the Jordan River explicitly connected to slaying the dragon. Yet God, my king, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads, plural, of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. That is gruesome. And that is a glorious God. And when you worship the glorious God who cuts the heads off of dragons and opens them up from the bottom to the top, then you're not afraid of Babylon or any other superpower on earth, or any oppressor or persecutor of the church, because that is our God. Worship the God who is great. God's dominion is total. His authority is absolute. He is, in this chapter, sovereign over heaven and earth. Verse 3, light and dark. Verse 4, pestilence and plague. Verse 5, nature and nations. Verse 6, earth and sea, mountains and deep. Verses 9 and 10, sun and moon, day and night. Verse 11, land and people. Verse 5, even the weapons of his enemies, he turns back on their own heads. That is sovereignty, complete and total. And when you worship that God, what happens to you? What happens to your confidence and your joy and your peace and your security? You know he rules it all. Worship the God who is gracious Habakkuk's entire song is grounded in an appeal to God's compassion. In wrath, remember mercy. Those who trust God, they they know his character, know his, his covenant. Isaiah 54, 8, God says, In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The everlasting love of God is the hope of his people. In verse 8, God is described as a warrior driving a chariot. But did you catch what kind of chariot it is? It's called his chariot of salvation. In verse 13, after all of this moving and marching and threshing and slaying, 
we hear why, the purpose of God in all of it. Verse 13, you went out to war for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That's why God fights. So when you worship the gracious God, then you are assured all of his power, all of his fearsome glory is for you and not against you because he's gracious. Finally, worship the God who is good. All of God's glory, all of his greatness, all of his grace, it's all summed up in the goodness of God. Verse 18, which we'll cover next week, sums up the the total effect of this vision of God on Habakkuk and those who sing his song. I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will rejoice. I will take joy. Where does that come from? God is terrifying in glory. He is sovereign in greatness. Men and mountains, nations and nature tremble before him. And in it all, those who worship him are satisfied and secured. Worship the God who is good and your heart too will be secured and satisfied forever. And you know where all of this is going. Shouldn't be a surprise to you if you worship with us regularly. You have something so much more than Habakkuk had. We don't have just Habakkuk's psalm and all the other psalms and stories of Scripture to fuel our worship. We, we have access to a better word, a better promise, a better covenant. Verse 3 says, God came. And th- those two words, God came. For Habakkuk, he thinks back to the exodus from Egypt. God came from Teman, the holy one from Mount Paran. God is not idle like I feared. He's the God who comes. He comes in time and space. But you know he came in the person of Jesus Christ from Nazareth. He came to Mount Golgotha. The power of God veiled not in dark storm clouds, but in frail humanity. And he came to initiate a better covenant. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, if the first covenant that brought condemnation appeared in all of this glory, like thunderbolts and storm clouds and fire and smoke, if it came like that, how much more glorious is the ministry of reconciliation, the better covenant. And you think, but if I could see something visible, my faith would be stronger. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, no, here's what's so much better about the new covenant. God himself causes light to shine, not just on the top of a mountain, but in your heart when he gives you the ability to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the hope of the church. This Savior King crushed the head of the serpent. He turned the serpent's weapons back on him and conquers sin and death and the devil. He tramples the grave. So if God ordains that you should live through troubled times, what should you do? You worship Jesus, while you wait, set your hope on Jesus, the serpent-slaying, sin-atoning 
Savior King. And come what may, don't ever stop worshiping Jesus in community with each other, rehearsing and celebrating all that God is for you and all he has done for you in Jesus as you wait for him to come again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are glorious. Glorious. And we want to be affected by the reality of who you are, how you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus. And we want to respond to you in faith. It's the only right way to respond. So I pray that if there are any here who don't know you personally by faith, that, that they would call on you in truth this morning. And I pray that you would sustain your people by your word and your spirit and fortify our hearts that we would be by your righteous right hand that upholds us, that we would be a worshiping community that seeks you in good times and in bad, that trusts you come what may. Oh God, secure our hearts according to your great goodness, which you have proven for us in Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.